Uh, turn to Revelation 2. We are still going to go in-depth with what was taught this weekend. And while you're turning there, uh, I just want to share a story to start getting your mind thinking. So in July, uh, we went down to Florida for a mini vacay, I think for five days or something. And uh, we get down there, we get our rental car, we land, we go to the hotel, get our hotel room. And then it's like, hey, we got time before dinner, so let's go find our beach spot because that's what I'm about. And so we go. And as we go, I, I, we hit Indian Shores Beach, and then we head south, and we hit Madeira Beach, and uh, all the way down to Treasure Island, and, uh, and we go back to Indian Rocks. Well, the first place we stop, I get out, and we start walking, and I'm about 50 yards from the ocean. <coughs> I coughed, and I'm like, what's going on? So it's like, well, why are there so many dead fish on the shore? And then I was like, well, let's go down farther. So we go down farther, and we get out. <coughs> this is a lot more dead fish down here. And so we do this. So for those of you that are from a Gulf area or ocean area, you've, you've heard of something that is very significant. And it, like, spoils your vacation. If all you want to do is go to the beach and go to the water. So I learned what red tide was. And for those of you that don't know what it is, it's this glorious little algae that is in the ocean. And it can get so bad it can turn the water red. But it's toxic. All right? So don't, like, don't do a facial scrub. It's toxic because that's what was killing the fish. But not only that, it affects your respiratory system and affects your mucous membranes. And by the last beach, which is farther south, it's like, man, my eyes are burning. What's going on? And so it totally spoiled. Luckily, we went further north to Sand Key Beach and got four out of five days of vacation. And so the reason why I'm telling you this is that you might begin to think of something. So here's a few illustrations. Luckily, I don't have any videos on this. Because certain things, good and in and of themselves, can become corrupted, can't they? Has anybody ever had the coffee and you forgot to check the cream before you put it in there? Anyone? Just to stay on the coffee kick, you know what? A perfectly good way to corrupt coffee is to put pumpkin spice in it. So um, I'll just leave that there. I'll, just, I'll leave it there. Guys, I know you have never grabbed the wrong can and put transmission fluid in your oil. I know you've never done that, right? Never. My favorite is with, with authors and homework. For those of you that have homework, you forgot to put that reference location down. And then you're talking to the teacher about plagiarism. Perfectly okay and good, but the one thing corrupted what you were doing. And of course, if we go really big and we start to talk about relationships is what things creep in there, lying, cheating, stealing, dishonesty, corrupts that relationship, doesn't it? So uh, before we get started, we definitely need to pray. Probably more for you than me, just because you have to listen. So, Lord, we just ask that you'd be with us tonight. And even though we're going through uh, what can be a difficult passage, we just ask that your Holy Spirit would minister the truth of this passage as well uh, to our lives. It's far removed, so may we uh, cover that historical bridge, that context bridge, to get what your application is for us 
today. So may you be with us. I just ask it in the power of Jesus' name. Amen. So if you want a title for this sermon, Compromise with Culture Corrupts Worship. Now that took me a good hour to think of. Because my, my second one, if they're going to put it up, is you can't play hokey pokey with God. That's a lot easier to remember. So let's read through this chapter, chapter 2, verse 12 through 29. And we're not going to go verse by verse because Eric covered that, but we are going to pick a key point to go deeper on. So chapter 2, verse 12, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which things I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce, or to seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. You shall rule them with a rod of iron, they shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels. As I also have received from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I encourage you to listen to Pastor Eric's sermon uh, this last weekend as well uh, to go over this. But this has to do with worship in general, these two things. But it's important for us to understand what worship is. Just to give you a warning, Worship is not coming Wednesday and Saturday and Sunday for 15 minutes and singing songs. Amen. It's not just that. It's the entirety of your life. In Hebrews chapter 13, not only does it talk about singing being a sacrifice of praise to God, but it talks about doing good, 
and it talks about sharing. If we think of the two greatest commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. And we forget that second part, don't we? Love our neighbor as ourselves. The entirety of your life is a life of worship. Now, this isn't like some Disney musical that you're skipping along singing all the time. Because life is hard. But who you bow down to is who you worship, isn't it? So with what we read, did you catch the commonality between these two different churches? To eat food sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Both of those things. And just to remind you, Pergamos, wait, we have a, I think we got the uh, seven churches slide. Do you have that, Christian? Just in case you don't know, okay, these are the seven locations of the seven churches that we've been going through these last two weeks, and we'll finish with chapter three, okay? So Thyatira and Pergamum are the top two round circles, and you can see Pergamum is closer to the coast, Thyatira is farther inland, that's just their locations, okay? I don't recommend them for kids' names in case you were going to have a kid, you know, especially, but that's where it's at, modern-day Turkey, okay? And you can see uh, where that's at. The blue circle is where John was at when he wrote it. Patmos. Remember, talked to you on Patmos and had a vision on the Lord's Day. So that's just a, a geographic location. So if you want to go to Google Maps, go ahead. It might be better as well. So Pergamos was known for all the variety of temples there. Okay? The throne of Satan that's talking about, they had one of the largest temples to Zeus that was there. But they had several others. I can't even pronounce the one dude's name. What did he say? Escapulus or something? That guy for medicine and had other ones, Artemis, Diana, and all of them. So it had a lot of different pagan temples that were all around the city. Thyatira had them as well too, but Thyatira was known as a trade place. So like that's where the union lived, all these different trades, okay? And, but what was tied with those vocations is if you wanted to get in like Flynn, guess what you had to do? You had to go to the temple of pipe fitters. You had to go to the temple of builders, the temple of street makers. Now, I use those vocations, but they had gods that was attached to them. All right? Different gods that were attached that they sought intercession for as well. So just a quick synopsis of those two things, of what they are. The only difference between these churches, and I won't, I won't bore you with the Greek words, is their level of or degree of involvement in these things. If we see what Pergamos did, is that they tolerated those who practiced those things. It's like, oh, there's some people in the church that they do that. They do that. But Thyatira does what? They teach. They teach it, that it's okay. And they seduce people to participate in it. Pergamos, it says that these are, are just the little things that he has against them, where Thyatira... This is a major issue that's happening in their church. Pergamos is on the way to corruption. Thyatira bought some property there. So you might be thinking, Dan, what are you talking about? We don't eat meat sacrificed to idols. We're not participating in sexual immorality and worship. And I would say you're right to a degree. 
with those three things. But we need to journey through Scripture to see this. This is not something new that's just written to these churches. So everybody go like this, okay? Now, if you've got a pencil, you want to take notes, and part of your homework, I'm sorry, I teach school discipleship a lot. Part of your homework is you, you should go back and read these passages that I'm going to reference because I'm not going to read entire chapters of 35 verses to you, but summarize them, okay? So this is not something that's new. And you're going to remember some of these stories. Remember Moses, right? Dude led the children of Israel out, Red Sea crossed, God delivers them, drowns the Egyptian bad guys. They keep going, they get to Mount Sinai, right? God says, hey, don't let the people touch the mountain, otherwise I'm going to fry their face off. Moses, Moses, Joshua, or Moses and Joshua go up, then Moses goes the rest of the way. Well, then the people get scared. What happened to our leader? And Aaron, vice president, right? He's like, hey, bring me your gold. He takes the gold, melts it down, and fashions it into a calf, golden calf, right? God's having this conversation with Moses up on top of the mountain and says, hey, Mo, you need to get down because the people have already corrupted their way. Now, this is significant. I want you to imagine God is part of the Red Sea. You've journeyed. You're no longer a slave. You're going through. You get here. You can see a manifest presence of God with thunders, lightnings, and smoke on top of the mountain. But yet you fall back to what you know, what the Egyptians taught you. Okay? All the alligator head gods, all the dog head gods, all the eagle head gods. Remember those? And they fall back. And then what he does in Exodus 32, 5 and 6. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. This is the golden calf. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. Then they rose early on the next day, offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And people, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So like rose up to play is, is the G version of the Bible, just in case you're wondering. And I'm going to explain it in a second. What they do, they feasted to that idol. They offered sacrifices to that idol and participated in those sacrifices. Okay, they got drunk. When they drank, rose up to play. Doesn't mean they're playing nine square like our junior high does. It's sexual immorality. All the way back here, in Exodus, the people of God abandoned what he's done to pursue this. It doesn't stop there. You remember Balaam was one of the guys mentioned in Pergamum. Pergamos. So Numbers 25, and there's several chapters. Who remembers these chapters that we went through with Numbers on Wednesday nights? Well, there's one of us. Okay, two, three. Right? So it's like, this is like three chapters. All right? So Balaam is a pagan prophet. And he recognizes that there's a higher power that's with these people. Well, Balak is the ruler. Balak says, hey, Balaam, I'll slip you some money if you curse him. Right? And he goes, I'll only do what I can do. And so he gets everything prepped and says, build these altars and offer sacrifices. And he gets on a high point and he's going to curse him. And what comes out of his mouth? Blessings. Right? Three different times it happens. 
But what happens at the end is he doesn't do a pronouncement. Is that he talks with Balak. Balak, if you want to make these people fail, entice them to worship your gods, to eat the sacrifices, and to commit sexual immorality with them. In verse 1 through 2 of Numbers 25, now Israel remained in Acacia Grove, and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. Twice the children of Israel, they ate meat sacrificed to idols, committed sexual immorality. The story doesn't stop there in the Old Testament. You'll remember some kings particularly King Solomon and King Ahab. And what the common point that they have with them is they both had pagan wives. Okay? Not Israelite, not Hebrew. Pagan wives. You'll remember Ahab had Jezebel. And Pastor Eric talked a lot about Jezebel. All right? Again, please do not name your kids Jezebel. All right? But the thing that flabbergasts me when we start to talk about Solomon, despite all of his wisdom, despite him meeting God twice, is he still pursued idolatry. First Kings chapter 11 He's warned not to intermarry because they said, God said that they'll turn away your hearts after their gods. But Solomon clung to them in love. And it goes on to say, for it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods. And his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was his heart, as was the heart of his father, David. And it lists all the gods that he worshiped. And then it goes on to say he built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the people of Ammon. He did likewise for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. And if you don't know your Bible history, it's not going to be a big deal. Do you understand? And I, and I want you to visualize you being so sucked into pagan religion that you sacrifice your infant to, to Chemosh or to Molech because child sacrifice was part of that worship and he built those high places to worship those two gods despite all the wisdom in the world despite having met God is that he still ate meat, sacrificed to idols committed sexual immorality well that's all fine and good That's the Old Testament, Dan. We're under the New Covenant, right? Amen. New Covenant. Well, the first problem the church has is they don't know how to take care of their widows, right? All the Jewish widows that became Christians are getting the bennies, while the the, uh, other Gentile widows aren't getting as much, okay? So they handle that problem in Acts chapter 6. But before too long, in Acts chapter 15, it's like, we need to have a church council, And so Barnabas and Paul come back and they give testimony to the work that the Lord's doing in the Gentiles, particularly in the, similar to what you saw up in the area of Turkey today, 
through Galatia and through the other places up there, and they come back and say, this is how God's working with the Gentiles. So they come together and they come to this conclusion when it comes to this aspect, and it's Acts 15, 19 through 20. But you can read through the end of that chapter. It says, therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. And this is James speaking, okay? And he says, but that we write to them, now listen, to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immoralities, from things strangled, and from blood. Now lest you be confused, things strangled and things, uh, and from blood, deliberately is talking about pagan sacrifices, okay? They would not mercifully kill their animals. They would strangle them. Why? Because the adrenaline goes and it goes into the meat and it's mystical. I can get the power from eating that meat. So the two things that they tell them are don't eat meat sacrificed to idols and don't commit sexual immorality. That's in the church some 10 to 20 years after Jesus has been resurrected. It's still a problem. We're not done. Paul addresses this problem in 1 Corinthians 10. What does he do? He goes back and says, hey, the stubborn, stiff-necked people in the desert wandering, they're for our example. Because the same thing was happening. And he addresses the same thing. Now, for those of you that are good with timelines... You want to guess how far between Exodus and A.D. 95 when John wrote Revelation? Close to 1,500 years, especially if you're an early date Exodus guy. So, never mind. 1,500 years. 1,500 years, the same problem. Turning from God, turning to idolatry, participating in it by eating the meat sacrificed to idols and sexual immorality. The corruption started with compromise and then progresses to celebration. Compromise of worship accepted by the culture. Moses is up on the mountain. He's not coming back. We're scared, so we're going to go back to what makes me feel good. Hey, Solomon, all those wives... This will improve my relationship. The pursuit, compromise of worship to pursue sin. Compromise that corrupts our worship. Now, we talked about worship, didn't we? Everything from your nose to your toes, heart, mind, soul, strength, neighbor as yourself, we don't have idols. Well, let me just question what, you're, what we will bow down to. Anybody bow down to the busy God lately? My life is so busy, God is an afterthought. How about this? Materialism, keeping up with the Joneses is a high priority in my life. There are several things, if we begin to think about it within our heart and ask ourselves, what am I bowing down to?
Pergamos was non-confrontational about the issue. It says they had those people that were there. Thyatira had it in their teaching, over the top. But what does it look like today? Right? Because now we're even just trying to cross the, the, the bridge from when John wrote this to today, right? And it's hard for us because it's like the only idols I know about is when you drive out woodmen towards Falcon. Anybody see those gold shiny things? The only ones I know about. I just wondering who's going to go Gideon on them. Okay. But with the church of Pergamos, you just like, oh, that's their thing. You don't talk about sin. You don't talk about repentance. You only talk about the, the fluffy things that make you feel good. Well, that's their thing. It's, not, it's, it's just here. It, it, you know, we don't, we don't need to talk to them about that stuff. Thyatira is the church that thinks these things are okay. In fact, this is to be celebrated, to bring people, to seduce people into participation. They celebrate things like abortion. Now, I don't know if you keep up with what happens in America. Do you know there's churches that celebrate abortion? Do you understand what I'm saying? They have a party. They celebrate the most bizarre sexuality. They celebrate gender dysphoria. They celebrate disobedience. There's churches in America that celebrate sin. Does this make a little bit more sense when we, when we take these churches and say, this isn't just some like old dead people from 2,000 years ago. The thing is still a reality today. What about us personally? Are we like the church of Pergamos? Just, just before we get started. Okay, I stepped on my toes first. Because we can turn a blind eye very easily. Can't we? We turn a blind eye to things, to culture's influence and perspective. Your tagline is to each his own. Another question to consider is, do I hold to culture's influence and perspective on faith, spirituality, sexuality, and promote it? It doesn't matter what you believe, everyone's saved. Jesus died so there's universal forgiveness. Universal grace so I can sin as much as I want because I'm forgiven. The culture influences us, doesn't it? And it influences us to the point of idolatry. The latest craze in Christian America is a deceptive personality test rooted and originated in demonic revelation. It's crazy. I don't understand it. When the author says, I got this from a spiritual entity, and then starts to promote it. 
Maybe we should check what our guidance is from some of the apostles. So look at 1 Corinthians 6. Paul addressing the same issue. Verse 12 through 13 says, All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Now listen to what he says in verse 13. Foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So even here, talking to Corinth, he has sandwiched these two things by inspiration of the Spirit. has to do with food and sexual immorality. Those two things. He writes in Ephesians 5, verse 3 through 7, But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them. It's very clear, even what Paul wrote, that there's not supposed to be a participation in those things. Peter, a good reminder in chapter 4, 1 Peter 4, verse 3 and 4. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation speaking evil of you. For those of us that are believers, we have wasted enough of our life pursuing sin not to pursue it today. And people think you're crazy for not pursuing it. Why don't you do what makes you feel good, even at the expense of someone else? If we really think about it, I never do this, just in case. This isn't a personal story. Has anybody ever tried to come in and worship and you're upset with your spouse? Anybody? Do you think that corrupts your worship a little bit? Okay. But I want you to think, think beyond this. What is corrupting my worship? Okay. And you might say, I'm not bowing down to idols or anything. But just like we started in the illustration, hey, you're getting paid eight hours a day. You're lucky if you work three. Is that corrupting your worship? Do you deliberately run over your neighbor's sprinkler head? Because there's some resentment there. Is that corrupting your worship? Is there some behavior, activity, uh, mindset, the way that you're thinking? Is there some hurt 
that cause bitterness that's corrupting your worship. And that hurts, doesn't it? But it's easy for us to skip over Revelation chapter 2. We don't have any idols, and I'm not doing sexual immorality. Next chapter, I want to get to Philadelphia, the happy chapter, right? The happy church. But if we don't grasp the depth of of what's going on, if we don't grasp the history that this has been a continuous problem with the people of God, and it still manifests today, it may not be corporately manifest inside this room, but it's manifest inside this room sometimes, isn't it? As I have idols that I bow down to, that I participate in, okay, these things affect my worship. Like Calvin said, our heart is a nice little idol factory at times. What are we to do? Some key verses that are very, very important, and I'd ask that you turn there. Turn to Romans 12, 1 and 2. And this might be familiar to you, but I want you to put on a perspective. This has to do with worship. This has to do with a life of worship. And this one's very easy to understand. And Paul writes, I beseech you, I plead with you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Holy acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And it's actually logical act of worship. It's not service like doing something good. It's service and worship is what that word means. Now listen, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So what does Paul admonish us to do? We are to present our life as an act of worship. Not Wednesday nights, not Sundays, our life. A living sacrifice. And we're to be transformed not conformed. And what that means is you are to be submissive to the Holy Spirit to change you. Not be passively influenced to be reshaped into the carnal culture of our world. Not just Paul. Let's see what Peter says in chapter 1. Verse 13, and as you turn there. Luckily, I could could teach on this for three hours. I'm just warning you. You can ask my students as well. So luckily, I talked with with Pastor Kent. He's like, yo, bro, you're like too many scripture verses. You need to cut them out. See, look, I have a big red X right here. See that? Everybody see that? But listen, 1 Peter 1, 13 through 16. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. And this admonition that Peter is giving to the church, the dispersed, gird up the loins of your mind, tighten your belt of truth, grab hold of it, make it secure, be disciplined, be sober, think straight, rest your hope on God's grace. Amen to that. Because you know we do not possess enough grace half the time to forgive ourselves, but God's grace is limitless. But we're also supposed to be what? Holy. Separate, set apart. Set apart for specific use. Set apart to be an instrument to worship God. When it talks about all the temple, all the tabernacle utensils and everything that it was holy, they were set apart deliberately in the aspect to participate in the worship of God. The same thing being spoken of us. And our passage gives us direction too in Revelation 2, doesn't it? What does he tell Pergamos? What is their solution? Verse 16, repent. Repent. A stinging word that we don't like, right? Because it, it like confronts us. It punches us in the nose to say there's sin in your life. Get rid of it. And even with this, if there's idols in our heart, that's misdirecting our worship, that we're serving those things, if there's things in our life that are corrupting our worship so that we're not worshiping God, that word repent makes it all become clear, doesn't it? And each of us within our hearts saying, my worship is corrupted because of this. What does he tell the church of Thyatira? The scary thing is, you notice he doesn't, he already gave a chance for Jezebel to repent, didn't he? And she didn't do it. Now it's to see if the children are going to repent. But he also says to the remnant, in verse 24, to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan. So those that don't have the teaching to eat meat sacrificed to idol, to participate in sexual morality, to deny God and worship something else. To those that aren't doing that, what does he say? I'm not going to put another burden on you, verse 25, but hold fast what you have till I come. Don't let go of your worship of God above all else. Don't let go of the reality that your life is living worship to him. Everything from how you, you talk to your coworker to the decisions you make in your life, all this, the entirety of your life, 
The entirety of your existence is an act and a life of worship. Don't lose that. As a church, we are called to not be of the world, though we live in it. In the, in the past, there's been church groups that have said, well, we're, we're out of town, right? We're leaving. We can't be around unbelievers. So we're going to have our own commune, right? And my question always comes to mind, what happened to the gospel? If we are of the world, the corruption will creep in and take over. As a Christian believer called to a life of worship, it's called to a life of worship as God says. Not what we feel, not what we think, not what we desire. But what God says, this is a life of worship. And we have plenty of examples and and encouragements. So just in thinking of these things, Am I living a life of pure worship? Is my life a life of worship? Even if we go back to Hebrews 13, okay, I sing. You know what? I watched some of it. You do not sing. And maybe that's a blessing for some of us. Maybe it might be singing in your heart. That's fine. But what about the other things? Are we sharing? Are we doing good? Those other sacrifices of worship? Or have I compromised in different areas? On a larger scale, you could say, am I corrupted by culture pursuing idols of my attention and acts of immorality in my life? And like we read, our only response is to repent and return to him. Now, it's easy to shut off for a hard message of confrontation about the darkness of our hearts at times. But look at the promises that he's given to both of them. In verse 17 of chapter 2, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now listen, to him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, not the meat offered to idols, the hidden manna to eat, which is likely referring to reality of relationship in the presence of Christ. I will give him a white stone and on a stone a new name, written which no one knows except him who receives it. This is just a stone of identification, but it's a white stone. This isn't some idol. This is a gift from our Savior for overcoming with a new name on it. So if you don't like the name your parents gave you, you have hope. But it's a new name. Look over to verse 24. Or verse uh, 26, and he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels. As I also have received from my father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So with, with those that overcome in Thyatira is this aspect of responsibility whether that's the millennium or something else, it's that aspect of ruling. But not only that, I will give him the morning star, again, a reference to Christ. So there's hope. The joy of overcoming because of what the Holy Spirit does in you 
what Jesus Christ has done for you. And I want to warn you is that if you are wallowing in shame and guilt, you know what you're saying is the cross isn't enough. I want you to think how easy this is. As a believer, what do we do? We confess our sin to God. God, I've done this. I repent. I turn from doing those things. I turn from living my way of selfishness. I turn to live your way of worship. Please forgive me. And then what is awesome is to embrace the grace of forgiveness. You, there is nothing that you can do. You cannot pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You cannot read your Bible three times a day to think that God is going to accept you. It's purely God's love because of what Jesus Christ did. And so now we're going to transition to communion. And I want to I point something out really quick. Jesus didn't offer meat sacrifices to idols. He offered himself in your place. That's the sacrifice that we're going to recall and remember. And I want to turn over to 1 Corinthians 11. And it's familiar. In some churches, it's read very common, commonly when it comes to times of communion. Verse 23, 1 Corinthians 11. Paul writing, he says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. And we all like that, but we don't like the next part. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the blood and body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. And they even had punishment. We are not worthy in and of ourselves. We are worthy because of what Christ has done for us. But what he's addressing is overt, rebellious sin in your life. The people in Corinth were getting drunk before they came to church and they would have communion. The group that first got there, they would have a, they would have I love potluck. And they'd have the bread on the front side and the wine on the back side of this fellowship meal, agape feast. They were gorging themselves before people that were working could come. So overt, rebellious sin. But the thing I would ask for you to examine yourself, Lord, is there any idols in my heart? Are there any idols that's preventing me from worship? Lord, is there anything that is corrupting my heart of worship? And that simple thing, Lord, please forgive me. I repent of what I've been doing. And then even if it helps you, whatever it may be, God's grace is overflowing beyond what you can imagine. And embrace that forgiveness and come remember what the Lord has done 
in celebration for our life with God. Let's stand. If you need prayer, the ministry team will be up front. If you have no idea who Jesus is and what he's done, please come talk to me. Lord, we uh, offer this time up to you. And as we've studied this, and it might have been hard on some and or just a reminder for others is that all of us would challenge our hearts to see if there's any impediment, any barricade uh, with you, our relationship with you, if we're we're taking for granted the cost and living a a frivolous life of selfishness, even to the point of putting us on a pedestal of idolatry. May your spirit just continue to speak the truth of the word, and may we leave here with joy knowing by the power of the Spirit that we can overcome these things, by the power of the Spirit we can be made holy, by the power of the Spirit we can live a life of worship because of what Christ has done. In Jesus' name, amen.